Tour Guide Tell All is sponsored by Malloy Law Offices. They are a personal injury law firm here in the local DC area that helps others recover from car accidents, work injuries, slip and fall injuries, and other types of accidents. They work on what's called a contingency fee basis. So if you hire Malloy Law Offices after an accident, then you never pay anything out of pocket. They also offer educational content and free consultations for those who may have more questions than answers. Like us at DC by Foot, we're really excited for our educational content meeting where they're gonna talk all about liability issues for tour guides. Visit their website at Malloy, M-A-L-L-O-Y-Law.com or call their offices at 202-335-6141. Malloy Law Offices is open 24-7, so don't hesitate to get the right legal help you need after a personal injury accident. Now on to the Rebecca's. Welcome to December. It is about almost coming up on the Christmas and the Hanukkahs and all the holidays. And we are your friendly neighborhood tour guides here with you to give you the scandalous and darker and often exciting and fun side of American history and politics and scandal. And that's all the things that are good and true in this world. Uh, As always, I am Rebecca. And I'm Becca. And together we are... Hello, Rebecca's. Love it. We are back. This is our last regular episode for 2022. This is December, the second part of December, and we've got a fun holiday adjacent uh, episode for everyone. Uh, (laughs) And first, before we talk about that, I want to mention... If you're in the D.C. area, we are leading plenty of holiday tours. Uh, If you're coming in January and February, we're leading January and February tours around the nation's capital. We would love to have you on one of them. We give tours all over the place, and uh, we give tours indoors, too. So if winter is not your jam, come on a museum tour with us. We love those, too. Uh, But we're around the holiday lights uh, and the scandals and all the fun and exciting D.C. things. So come on a tour because we are very exciting in person. Uh, We also want to give a big, huge shout out as always to our amazing and wonderful and dedicated and fabulous patrons. They keep the lights on. They are the wind beneath our wings. And if you are a patron, you should be getting a bonus episode every single month just for you. This month, we are going to have Becca and Candon and I are going to have a sit sit around and we're going to have a glass of wine each and we're just going to chit chat. So you're going to want to get in on that action. I'm just t- saying, yes. um, yeah, you're a, like a glass of wine each. Yes, a yes. glass, a glass, <laughs> indeed. Yes, we're going to have some holiday cheer. It's going to be great. Uh, so definitely get in on that action. We are so grateful for our patrons, uh, and that's all of our intro. So, Becca, how what are we doing? How you doing? Are we ready for our last episode of the year? That's so crazy. It's our last episode. And we're going to do something, I think, like very classic Americana, which also came to me, I feel like, in a stroke of brilliance when we were thinking about doing something related to the holidays, but maybe not just we've done Christmas at the White House. We've done kind of some typical Christmassy episodes. And it came to me, Washington crossing the Delaware, which happens 
late on the evening of Christmas Day. And it's mm -hmm. this iconic American moment. And I think if you think about images of Washington, you probably think of him like in the boat, standing tall with this like leg propped up, leading troops across. And I just thought it would be really fun to dig into this event because it happens right around Christmas. And it's one that has a lot of like myth around it, but I think people sort of forget what actually is going on. And it's such an important moment for Washington, for the Continental Army. And it, it takes a lot of grit and guts to do it. And the logistics of it are fascinating. So we're going to talk about Washington crossing the Delaware. And I'm really excited. So not technically a Christmas episode, but Christmas Day late in the evening is when it occurs. Can't get more Christmas than happening on Christmas Day. Yeah, yeah. So I think, though, to understand what's going on with the Washington and why he even decides to undertake this crossing is to sort of understand where we are as we get towards the end of 1776. So, you know, 1776, when we think about the American Revolution, people think about that year and sort of forget that, like, there are many more years of the revolution to come. <laughs> but, you know, things start out really well for us. We, we write a declaration. We're drumming up, like, public support for the war. We drive the British out of Boston. So there are some things that are going well for the Americans. But it's not all fun and games. New York is a different story. Things are a lot tougher in New York. General William Howe has basically pushed the Continental Army out of New York entirely by the time we get to sort of mid-November. And uh, Cornwallis has crossed the Hudson River, and he's chasing Washington and his men across New Jersey. So this is not super fun for Washington because they're in retreat. They're being sort of beaten back, and they're losing really valuable ground. That said, here's a little thing about fighting back in the old-timey days, is you didn't fight in the winter because it was nearly impossible. No. You know, you don't have tanks, so trying to cross ice and snow, it's just not happening. This is upstate, you know, New York, New Jersey. These are places where winter is very real. And so everybody's going to go into winter quarters. And this is just sort of a thing they did, right? It was like an agreement that we're going to kind of quarter and there's not really going to be a lot of fighting or movement. So Washington is sort of facing down the reality that they're about to, everybody's about to winter quarter. The British are going to quarter in New York and most of their Hessian troops are going to hang out in New Jersey. So the Hessians are sort of hired hands for the Brits. So if you're thinking Washington in the winter, you inevitably think of Valley Forge. That's the next winter. That's 1777 to 78. So that's not, hasn't happened yet. Although winter is still winter and it's all really terrible. New York is, an, is going to remain a stronghold for loyalists, for the British throughout this entire war, really. And so that's where they're going to make their camp. And I love the idea that they just quit fighting for a little while. They don't have engines. They don't have heaters. There's, you know, it's cold. Ground is frozen, which is going to mean it's difficult to eat and you got to feed your animals and all that stuff. So there's all kinds of impediments. And so fighting in the winter is sort of by gentleman's agreement, not a thing that we're going to do. We're going to just, you know, basically hunker down and wait for better times. The Hessians are also the sort of the wild card in all of this. The British have decided to basically loan out or uh, hire in rather troops from Hesse, which is part of Germany now. Uh, that's why they're called Hessians. Uh, and so it is, I feel like always ironic that the greatest military power on earth needs to hire in essentially mercenaries to come in and uh, help out with this. But that is kind of where we are. The state of the Condell army is not good at all. They are, for one thing, again, we're up against the greatest military power on earth who have also brought in help. 
and we are a bunch of ragtag like colonial troops we don't have uniforms they have no money they don't have a ton of food either uh and so expiring enlistments so if you signed up at the beginning of the war your enlistment is starting to expire at this point and you're like hey i did my bit i want to go home now and washington says wait a minute we're not done yet you can't go home Uh, And so you're seeing the winter weather is going to cause a rise in desertions. So people are going to say, like, I'm out of here. Peace. And morale declines because they're getting defeated. So we started out really great in the summertime. It's all very exciting to be, you know, fighting in the summer. We've had the Declaration of Independence. But now reality is setting in. It's cold. They want to go home. And we've lost a bunch. So they've lost plenty of men and also supplies, munitions, food clothing, all kinds of important things that you're going to need. And the communications are difficult between the different parts of the Continental Army. And so they've managed to get into Pennsylvania, north of Trenton, New Jersey, and destroyed or moved all boats so that they can hold off any further British advance. And so that's kind of where the Continentals are. Yeah, so you got to imagine Washington, you know, everyone's real gung-ho at the beginning, especially when it comes to kind of getting the British out of Boston, which is the powder keg for so much of this. But now they're facing the reality of, oh, this may go on for a while. This is going to be tough. And, oh, yeah, you know, the government wrote a declaration, but Congress hasn't really allocated enough funds for this war yet. And then when they're losing, there are members of Congress hesitant to give money to a losing army. So it's, it's a little low point for the morale. As everyone heads into winter encampments, Cornwallis, under Howe's orders, has set up outposts basically through New Jersey, from New Brunswick to Burlington, including uh, one at Bordertown and one at Trenton. And he's basically like, all right, we're just going to try to get as much as we can of New Jersey as our quarters. Washington's going to set up near McGonkley's farm in Pennsylvania. He's got maybe 4,000 to 6,000 men when he first gets there, but pretty much 2,000 of them, so a third to half are unfit for duty. And this is not like a testament to to their morale or anything. It is literally, they are in need of serious medical care. There's diseases rampant, infection, the cold, frostbite. Um, So he's got men, but half to a third of them are really in no state. And you've got people deserting left and right. And you also, even if they had all been at full strength, 4,000 to 6,000 men is not a lot. Even back then, even in the old timey, like military times, this is not like an overwhelming force. We're not talking about bringing a huge, like substantial host to bear against the British. 4,000 to 6,000 men is small and losing half to a third of that is smaller still. So this is not great. It's not ideal. Washington tries to get more men. Washington's smart enough to know this is not enough. He's going to order General Horatio Gates and General Charles Lee to join him, but they don't do that. (laughs) Gates gets delayed. He tries. Snow is already coming down. He basically cannot make his way through the Hudson River Valley. General Charles Lee, who, if you have listened to Hamilton, Lee pretty much just sums up his, they sum up his entire thing by just being a jerk and shitting the bed. As the lyric says, um, that's Lee. So the same, the very same Charles Lee is basically just going to delay following orders. He's just going to pretend like he never got the orders. He's going to make up a lot of excuses and he's never going to really leave Morristown. So Washington, and I think this is an important thing to note, he is general of the Continental Army, but the fact that somebody like General Charles Lee can kind of drag his feet and not follow orders shows that that position is not stable. We're early into this war. 
Washington gets this job because he really puts himself out there to take it. And he's got the most military experience, but there are already plenty of people saying, can Washington win this war? So I think this is an example of that, that there are people who are like, let me hedge my bets a little bit, or, you know, I don't have to follow his orders because maybe he's not going to be the guy in charge come spring. Right. And he's not, so Washington is not the Washington we know either. Like the father of our country, he hasn't gotten there yet. And there's a lot of people who want his position who aren't sure he's capable of doing this. There's a number of generals who are kind of jockeying to sort of, you know, maybe this guy fails, I'll be the next one up. Lee is not the only one. There's another guy named Benedict Arnold who's doing essentially the same thing. Washington is in no way in complete and total command. And you also like, they don't have modern cell phones and stuff. The idea that like orders get lost is not completely implausible either. I'm just saying. I mean, also true. So here's here's where we're at. And then there is a writer, a man named Thomas Paine, who hopefully if you're listening to this, you may know that he authors Common Sense, um, very important, significant pamphlet. And Paine is kind of reading the room here. He's reading a sense that people are feeling defeated as we get to the end of the year. And so he is going to write a series called The American Crisis. And the idea is to inspire civic virtue and devotion to the revolutionary cause. And on December 19th, he drops this banger, an all-time great revolutionary era quote. These are the times that try men's soul. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of his country, but he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. The harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. Washington reads this, and he's like, oh, yeah. That's lit. He's like, yeah, no, this is really good. And he's going to read this to his men, and he orders all the other generals in the Continental Army to gather together and read this. And it's, you know, when Payne writes Summer Soldier, Sunshine Patriot, it's flowery, but it's also literal. It is, this fight's going to go through the winter. We have got to fortify ourselves. Like, we got to be in it to win it. And I love that because Payne and Washington do not end up being very good friends. (laughs) And they end up having a very complicated uh, relationship. But Washington recognizes how powerful this pamphlet is. The sentiments here are really rousing. And so if you've ever heard that phrase, the sunshine patriot, the summer soldier, these are the times the try men's soul. It's pain talking about this moment for the Continental Army. I love this quote, the summer soldier and the sunshine patriot. The whole idea is that you're fair weather. Like he's using this weather metaphor. It's clearly a banger. It does its job. This was written December 19th. So we're coming right up to Christmas here. And Washington reads this out to his troops. You can imagine this being inspiring, like basically telling them you are the winter soldiers. You are here in the dark and the terrible times. You deserve the thanks. This is very much like a, you know, rousing call to arms. Thomas Paine could write. And Washington decides to take a risk. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. He does get a little help, though. He's going to get some reinforcements. Uh, 2,000 men come from General Lee. Charles Lee does send some men, although Lee himself doesn't because he's been captured by the British. So <laughs> awkward for him. What are you going to do? 600 men come with Gates. Gates makes it eventually, even though he's delayed. 1,000 militia men come from Philadelphia who arrive under Colonel Cadwallader, which... Um, there's like a, probably a more sophisticated way to say that, but. No, we're going to do with Cadwallader. It's one of my favorite names of this period. <laughs> so all things said and done, once he gets a few little reinforcements, he's up to 6,000. 
but he figures I've got about 6,000 men, but I need to keep guarding the ferries. I need to make sure that British can't get to us by boat. I need to protect our supplies. That's important. So he figures he's got maybe about 2,400 men, maybe 3,000 that can make an offensive attack on the Hessians. He decides the Hessians are quartered. We're going to attack. This is really like a big, big jump for Washington. And I think that like, he's got some, you know, he's got some ego reasons for doing it. He needs to make a bold move. He's 44. So he has more military experience than most because of his time in the French and Indian war. And he kind of knows that if you're down in numbers, you got to think creative and think big, but there's also a bunch of whispers about his leadership. And so he knows maybe it's go big or go home. And he thinks he can target Trenton. That's going to be his best bet. And he tells his staff that they're going to plan some sort of attack for December 23rd, which is two days before Christmas. Eventually, because of weather and logistics, it won't actually happen until late on Christmas Day. But the plan initially is to go two days before. He actually is planning for three crossings. And I'll just tell you now, spoiler, they're not all three going to work out. <laughs> so that's the first thing. Crossing the Delaware is uh, supposed to be three crossings. He figures his troops, the largest contingent, will lead the attack on Trenton. He's going to have Cadwallader's men cross to the south, and they're basically going to create a diversion. It's going to be, look over here, we're crossing, pay attention to us and not the other guys. Then there's supposed to be a third column, which is supposed to be led by James Ewing, just south of Trenton, and it's basically going to be a blockade to stop the Hessians from retreating. So this is a really great plan, right? We're going to go three-pronged. We're going to, like, encircle them. But how do you logistically do that? And the logistics of this are really sort of fascinating. They actually really are. It's um, how do you do this safely and unseen? Well, the unseen part, probably do it at night. Okay, that's fair enough, I guess. They're going to cross at the narrowest point they that is in the area, about 300 yards. Uh, the boats have to be hidden behind an island close to where they're going to cross. So they have to hide all of these boats. And this is not like one or two boats. They've got to hide a bunch of them. Men are drafted by militiamen from New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and some boats come from the Pennsylvania Navy. Boats are operated by seamen, mostly from Marblehead, Massachusetts. Yay. Uh, and they're designed to carry heavy ironworks, so cannon and things like that. Uh, and so they can handle the weight of all the these dudes and the artillery that they're bringing with them. And this is one of the reasons why it ends up being two days later than Washington plans, because you need the boats and the boats have to get there. And if the boats are at, at some of these boats are not in good shape. And I love that he's sort of like, who are my seafaring men? And it's like dudes from Massachusetts and the Pennsylvania Navy, guys who are used to being out on the water are like, yeah, we got to fix these boats. So this is part of what delays the crossing is you've got to have all your sort of seafaring New Englander types working on these boats and getting them operational and then getting them in place. So all of this has to happen before the troops move to cross. So I find all of that really interesting. And I did think about that. I was like, I know he crosses, but where did the boats come from? Most of the troops don't reach the crossing point until about 6 p.m. They wanted to cross earlier, uh, sort of with dusk, but that doesn't end up happening. So they cross about 90 minutes after sunset because it's December and, you know, sunset's early. The weather is terrible. 
So it's getting progressively worse throughout the day. Uh, it turns from drizzle to rain and then sleet and then snow. And it's very cold. And they seem to have been in some sort of what they call a little ice age. So it's actually like even colder than it would be this time of year now. Uh, river is full of ice. And that's not also great because you got to like dodge around the ice uh, as you're kind of heading across. So it is extremely cold as they're going across. And in fact, the amount of ice on the river is going to prevent them from finishing the crossing until 3 a.m. on the 26th. So they start at 6 p.m. and they don't actually finish with all the artillery pieces crossing the Delaware until 3 a.m., which is nine hours. That's a long time. And once if you've crossed, you're just waiting that whole time for everybody to catch up, freezing, watching every all of this kind of go on. You can't talk because we're trying to preserve the element of surprise. So this is a, like an in-depth, thought-out operation they have to go through here. And outside of Washington's officers, the men don't know that they're doing this until after the evening parade. They're basically told, all right, guys, we're not going to bed. We're going on a secret mission. So it's sort of like, you know, you think evening parade, we were trooping about, we're about to turn in. And it's like, oh, no, man, here's three days worth of food and fresh flints for your muskets. And we're going and don't don't say anything. So the element of surprise is there for the Continental Army as well, because unless you were up at the very top tier, you didn't really know that you were about to launch a surprise attack. And it's also Christmas. And it's Christmas. Yeah. So you're not expecting, right? Because of the mentality of winter quarters, because you sort of hunker in the idea of attacking on Christmas, this would not have crossed really anyone's mind. I think when we talk about the crossing the Delaware, we have to mention Henry Knox, who I love, because there has to be somebody, right? There has to be somebody who can really think about logistics, and that's Henry Knox. And Washington chooses Knox to be sort of his right-hand man on this, to be the head of the operation. Knox was chief of artillery for the Continental Army. He would later go on to become the first Secretary of War. We should really do an episode on Henry Knox because he's a really interesting guy. And Washington couldn't have done it without Knox. Knox is really the one who figures out how they're physically going to get the men across. He figures out how many boats. He figures out how to pack the boats in such a way that you're being smart about it, but also recognizing that many of these men do not know how to swim, which I think is worth noting. So you have to do this in a way where they feel comfortable. They can't feel totally like they're going to fall over. Also, you know what has to go with you to fight a battle? Horses. So your horses have to get across. <laughs> and they're going to take 18 huge pieces of artillery, mostly cannons, but other artillery as well. And it's Knox that's going to sort of take a look at the river, try to figure out where the ice chunks are, and try to give the boats a path. So he's going to really be the ones operating and giving the orders on how to make this happen. And I should say that uh, some men do fall in when this happens, because, you know, it's inevitable. You're packed into these boats. It's kind of an amazing, I mean, think about the, first of all, the logistics of this. It's at night, it's freezing cold, you have to dodge ice, you've got horses who they don't know to be silent, you also have heavy pieces of artillery, and you have thousands of men trying to cross a river, and also you're trying to do this at night and be silent while doing it. The logistics of this, the surprise element, this could have all gone, you can very easily see this going very wrong, very fast. Yeah. And some men do fall over, everybody gets recovered. Not a single boat sinks. They don't lose any cannons. They don't lose any horses. By all accounts, 
the first crossing is successful. And I say the first crossing because that's Washington. That's his men. They're going to get over there. They form like a sentry line. But then, you know, there's supposed to be two others. Ewing isn't even going to bother. He just can't even cross. It's too icy. It looks choked with ice. He's too worried about safety. They end up calling off his unit entirely. And then for Cadwallader, he crosses, but he doesn't bring his artillery with him. So then he brings the men back because he's like, well, we, we don't have the cannon, so we're going back. Then he realizes, oh, shit, Washington made it across. And, oh, he's attacking the, the Hessians. We should probably get back over there. So then he gets over there. And by the time Cadwaller gets back, Washington's already moving on. And so he just retreats again. So he does end up crossing the Delaware many times, but none of them is part of this crossing with Washington. I love it so much. And there's probably some military historian being like, Becca, there's way more to it than that. And there sure, probably sure. is. But just, I like to imagine literally, he's like crossing and then he's like, oh, I don't have any cannons. And I'll cross back and then be like, oh, wait, Washington's winning. We better get over there. And like, oh, it's too late. And then just like going back. <laughs> um, so Washington and his men make it across. Yay. But he doesn't have the other two columns, the diversion or the ones that are supposed to stop a retreat. So it's just him and his men. As soon as they are formed and ready, everybody's crossed, all the horses, all the artillery, all the men, they form up. And then uh, early in the morning, he's going to split them into two columns. It's now December 26th, uh, one under the command of himself and the other under the command of General Sullivan. Sullivan column goes one way. Basically, the Washington column goes the other way. And they are going to attack the Hessians in Trenton. The Hessians are caught basically completely by surprise, which is great. Uh, the Hessians are weary and exhausted from skirmishes and had evening gunfire the night before. Also, it had been Christmas and they had been partying and eating lots of food. Uh, so they're a little full and possibly a little drunk. And there is a guy named Abraham Hunt who pretends to be a loyalist and make sure that they party long into the night and so therefore very incapacitated uh, when they are attacked very early the next morning uh, and a little bit uh, worse for the wear uh, as they see the uh, Americans coming at them. Washington attacks and the battle is over in very little time because Washington is a hero and he's launched this sneak attack and it's amazing. And the Hessians are like, what is happening? This is great. So that's kind of how that it goes very quickly. Only three Americans are killed. We capture a thousand prisoners and lots of muskets, artillery and powder, which is amazing and very much needed. It really it's a huge risk. Right. And it pays off beautifully. It yes. ends up being absolutely what Washington wants. It's a decisive victory. They pick up a ton of supplies they need. They lose almost nobody. So it doesn't come at a huge loss. And it shows the British like, oh, we're sneaky. We're not giving up. We may be small, but we're mighty in terms of spirit and creativity on the battlefield. And it's going to really be a huge morale booster. And what I love is that it's not that the Hessians didn't know this could happen because we mentioned all those deserters. There were deserters trying to make money with the Hessians and the Brits by passing off information. And the Hessians had actually gotten information from a deserter who'd overheard one of Washington's war councils and basically said, hey, 
y'all are probably going to be attacked. And the Hessians had heard already so many false rumors about the Continental Army marching on Trenton that they just brushed it off. They thought it wasn't real. And so if they had maybe treated that a little bit more seriously, if they had maybe thought to station outlooks, if they thought to maybe consider the fact that they might get attacked, it would have been very different. But Washington, divine intervention, luck, whatever you want to call it, everything goes perfect for Washington. And it could have gone very, very badly. And instead, it becomes really his first, I think, brilliant maneuver of the revolution. Yes, this is Washington's, like, this makes his reputation or cements his reputation would probably be a better way to say that. This is going to provide a huge morale boost all the way up and down uh, for the Continental Army. They have scored this huge victory with very little loss, uh, with great risk. Everybody loves the story of the underdog. Uh, this is fantastic. And Washington, it sort of stores and reinforces the belief that Washington is our guy. He's the guy that's going to lead the Continental Army to victory. Congress sees this as a way to continue to justify investing funds into the army uh, and the war efforts. So they're going to see this and be inspired by this and basically start providing funds for uh, all kinds of things that the army needs. And it really cements Washington's legacy here. Uh, the men involved are going to include a lot of future important people, for example, Alexander Hamilton, future President of the United States, James Monroe, and future Chief Justice John Marshall. So they all take part in this, and this burnishes Washington's legacy. And one of the things that Washington seems to understand that I think every sort of anybody who knows anything about the military does is that the idea of success promotes further success. And so if you are feared, that reputation precedes you. And so this is the start of sort of Washington establishing himself very much as like a, someone to be reckoned with. These aren't just ragtag colonials that are half starved and half naked. This is an army led by a bold risk taker. Yeah, it really, it, it's a win-win-win for him. And it's sort of this amazing moment. And I like to mention future president James Monroe. He's injured at the Battle of Trenton. So he gets kind of his little, his war wound. He gets his like, you know, badge of courage from this battle. He's in the boat with Washington. Monroe's in the boat that Washington's in when he crosses. And I think those that were there, right, this, like you said, it's really going to burnish Washington in their minds. And this will be a moment that all of those sort of notable men you mentioned will reference throughout their lives and career when they talk about Washington, this bold, decisive moment. And I love it because it, it's a big, it's a big risk. And let me tell you, I drove last summer across the Delaware at the point where the crossing went. And it's a little tiny wooden rickety bridge. It's like one way you know, and actually, sorry, the road's two-way. There's only enough room for one car. And so you're like trying to wait for the other cars. It's kind of crazy. But then you look at it and you think, what if this was choked with ice? What if I was trying to move horses and cannons? And it's really, really incredible to me. I don't believe in necessarily putting Washington up on this pedestal per se. He's a complex, complicated person, as we often talk about on the podcast, but this is such an incredible moment. And I do think there was no guarantee it was going to work. And the fact that he took that risk says something about Washington, especially when he's at this age, especially at this point in the American Revolution. And it makes me think of somebody like General George McClellan. You know, there's nothing to be gained from waiting, right? Washington recognizes that they have to keep moving. They have to, you have to stay in motion like a shark. Fortune favors the bold. 
fortune favors the bold. Exactly. So there's a pretty big legacy on this. I wanted to mention a man named Conrad Hare, who allegedly, allegedly, allegedly lived to be 106 years old. Allegedly. Birth records back then are, and death records are sketchy, but probably lived to be over 100, probably 106 years old. From Massachusetts, he participated in the crossing and would testify that he participated in the crossing, although there is some little debate about it because of when he was discharged, but those records are also not great. So it's hard to say, but he contends and in his lifetime had witnesses that he, he did cross, but he was actually photographed at the age of 103. So he, if he really was there, is the only person who participated in the crossing to have his photo taken. He's also considered potentially one of the first people to be photographed which is pretty crazy to think that somebody who crossed the Delaware with Washington might have a photo. And then there is the painting, the painting. And I think it's what most people think of when they think of, when I say that phrase, Washington crossing the Delaware. Uh, And I should say, technically, the artist made three of that painting. So the artist is Emanuel Leutze. He is going to make these paintings-ish in 1851. He grew up in America, returned to Germany uh, as an adult, and gets this idea for the paintings and is going to make three of them. The main one is destroyed by bombs in the Second World War uh, in 1942. It was hung in uh, Bremen. The second, a full-size replica of the first. It's been several different places, uh, but was actually been lent a couple of times, and it was in the Metropolitan for a while. The third smaller scale version hung at the White House until 2014 when it was acquired by a couple and put in the Minnesota Marine Art Museum in Winona, Minnesota, and has been put on display as the centerpiece of their American art collection. You've seen this picture. We'll obviously drop this in the show notes, but you've seen, uh, if you're familiar at all with this, this is Washington standing boldly crossing. Now, a couple of historical inaccuracies. Um. So the those in the boat with Washington are meant to represent a cross-section of the American colonies. You'll see somebody with a Scottish bonnet. There's somebody who's uh, an African-American. Uh, you've got James Monroe, who actually was there, but he's the one who's supposed to be holding the flag. They may have taken a little artistic license with some of the other faces in the boat. It's not... Well, and there's sort of this idea that they represent each of the of the colonies fighting, which we know that almost everyone who went across with him was Pennsylvanian, was mostly men from yeah. Pennsylvania. Um but it's supposed to be the you know it's it's artistic it's supposed to be this is a cross section of our fighting force yes and it is also not likely that washington was standing that seems i'm not an expert on boats or like the navy or anything but when you're crossing it's supposed to be this dramatic moment where he's you know taking us into our future but the idea it's supposed to, he's supposed to be very heroic but it would have been very difficult for him to remain standing in a stormy night with like snow and sleet coming at him also as they're trying to navigate that's going to throw off the balance of the boat there is a historian that has argued that everyone would have been standing up which Again, I don't know a lot about boats, but that just seems like ridiculous to me. Um, At any rate, uh, it is very dramatic and very fabulous. And you have absolutely seen a picture of it. It's one of these really iconic signpost moments of the American Revolution. This is one of the the reason that you've heard of this uh, is partly because of this painting. Like this painting really memorializes the idea of Washington, the hero, dramatically crossing on Christmas Day to win support uh, and this dramatic victory that he's going to score. So this is the painting is part of the myth making. And the artist doesn't do this simply to myth make 
in America. He's actually interested in encouraging liberal reformers in Europe in the middle of the 19th century. And he's sort of like, hey, look at what these patriots were doing. They fought this cause against all odds, established these new nation. And so he's really trying to use it a little propagandously to inspire similar reformers in Europe. And so it's very much meant to be a piece of sort of political art. It's meant to be a piece that is going to inspire. It's not meant to be a historically accurate depiction. But this is probably, I mean, I lost track. I tried to document, you know, how many books or places this image has gone. And it's just like, it's incalculable. It's innumerable. But really, that's true of the crossing the Delaware. If you watch a movie or a documentary or anything about Washington, this is usually going to come up. If you go to Mount Vernon, um, there's a wonderful 4D movie that we definitely recommend, especially for families. And it's three key moments in the revolution. And this is the first one, right, to really um, talk about. So it's something that's going to come up as really a signpost in the revolution and in Washington's life. So it just seemed like an appropriate Christmas Day moment. Take this as a sign to take a big risk, do something crazy, cross an ocean or cross cross a river choked with ice in, in a boat. Go nuts. <laughs> um, I could barely stay out on the National Mall in the cold wind, so I don't think I could have made it across the Delaware. <laughs> Apologies to General Washington, but I would have been like, no, thank you. Yeah, I would have been like, you could just shoot me for desertion right now. I'm not, this is not a thing. (laughs) It's really amazing. And Washington, this cements his reputation. And so the war sort of continues on from here. It's going to start 1777 with the Continental Army in a good spot. And so that's basically what he's doing. We're here. We're we're not just messing around. This is real. Uh, and so that's kind of what he's establishing himself as. And it's I'm so glad you decided to do this. This is so much fun. Um, Washington crossing the Delaware. Yay. Yay. Um, fun outro. Thank you guys so much for being with us another year. I can't believe this is our last regular episode of 2022. We are so appreciative to all our wonderful listeners, um, to everybody who reaches out to us on social media, email. We love hearing from you. We love meeting you on tour. So many of you did come see us on tour this year, and that was awesome. Uh, We love meeting you in the field. Uh, There have been so many wonderful guides and park rangers and people who've reached out to us in person, and we are so, so glad to have you. So please know we're gearing up for another great year. If there's something you want to hear about, tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us, email us, talk to us in person. We want to hear your ideas. Very much. We want to talk about what you want to hear about. So reach out. We are on Twitter at Tour Guide Tell. We are at Tour Guide Tell All at gmail.com. We are on the Instagrams as well. Uh, and of course, back and I have our own personal uh, Twitters, which you can find pretty easily. So definitely let us know what you want to hear about in 2023. We are coming back at you with more fun and more exciting, more stories, great hair and great stories. Uh, coming at you in 2023. Thank you guys for coming along on the ride. Bye. Bye.